We have a conviction here to preach in an expository kind of way. We're committed to expository preaching, meaning that we preach through books of the Bible and we preach every passage that comes up along the way. And that's a, a wonderful conviction that you hold firm to, especially when you come to passages like we are going to look at today in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because that conviction doesn't let us skip over the difficult topics. Because we believe that every word of Scripture is breathed by God for our benefit. Our conviction here at Bayleaf Baptist Church is that the Word of God is formative. More than that, it is transformative. And it's in particular these sensitive areas where we need to hear God speak the most. And God has spoken clearly. He has spoken directly about the issue of sexual immorality, and that is the, the topic that Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I think we can all agree, based on the observations I'm sure we all have about the culture that we exist in, that we need God to address this topic now more than ever. Let me begin by saying this morning that everything we're going to talk about today was originally intended in the creative act of God for his glory and our good. We gotta believe that and know that. Our bodies, physical intimacy in the context of marriage, these are good parts of God's creation. They are evidences of his kindness toward us as his people. But as with everything else, sin has distorted what was good and caused us to view our bodies and the way that we use them in a way that will, that will inevitably lead to our destruction rather than our good. Our culture, and perhaps some of us who are even gathered in the room today are joining us online, are asking an age-old question first posed in the garden. Did God really say, they're questioning what God has said about the issue of sexual immorality, of sexual expression. More than that, many are asking, is what God has said good? Well, I hope that you see then the blessing for us and Paul's writing inspired words under the work of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because we get to witness Paul confronting the so-called wisdom of his day with eternal wisdom that can only come from God. And here's what Paul says to the church there to address the rampant sexual immorality that was happening in his culture and that was creeping into the church. The wisdom of God must determine how we use our bodies for the glory of God. The wisdom of God it must determine how we use our bodies, specifically in the area of sexual expression, in order to glorify God. So church, let's hear this morning from the Apostle Paul in these nine verses and allow the wisdom of God to inform the way that we view the sexual acts. Beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify, your God, glorify God in your body. Now there are two major sections to our text that kind of follow a major theme that we've seen unfolding in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And here are the two main themes, the foolishness of man and the wisdom of God. And we've seen over and over again how these things are opposed. The foolishness of man is contrary, opposed to the wisdom of God. And it's no exception here in the issue that Paul is addressing at the end of 1 Corinthians 6. So the first section of our passage, we see Paul engaging the wisdom of that day, the wisdom of this age. And in the second section, we see him confronting that so-called wisdom, which in reality is foolishness, with the eternal wisdom of God that he has revealed to us in his word. And so in light of the way that Paul develops his argument, let's follow how he addresses first the wisdom of that day and then the wisdom of God that he confronts that foolishness with. So what is it that the Corinthians were believing that was leading them to an incredible level of disobedience in the, the area of sexual immorality. Now, to outline the wisdom of the Corinthians, the, the, the foolishness that they were engaging, Paul quotes two different sayings, mantras, that the people of God were claiming at this time. You can see them in verses 12 and 13. And here are the quotes. Firstly, all things are lawful for me. It's verse 12. Second, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Verse 13. Let's think about each one of these quotes and the, the so-called wisdom that they reveal. Firstly, all things are lawful for me. If you notice in the scripture, there are quotes around this phrase. And that, that shows us that it was a type of slogan within the Corinthian culture. Specifically in the church. Now it's hard for us to know exactly how this phrase came to have a level of importance in the church, so much importance that Paul needs to address it. But our best understanding is that it's an exaggeration or an over-application of a, a central core teaching of the apostle Paul. And this will be revisited later as we move through the first letter to the Corinthians. One of the major hallmarks of Paul's teaching was the fulfillment of the purification requirements of the law in Christ that Christ came to fulfill the law. Now, if you've spent any time reading the Old Testament, you will know that ritual purity was of high concern for the Jewish people. In order to engage in worship of the one true God, in order to be a part, a meaningful part of the community of God's people, you needed to be considered ritually pure. You needed to be declared clean. 
And that means you had to observe certain restrictions that protected your purity in the law, as well as offer a sacrifice if something in your life fell short. So for instance, you could not eat certain meats. You couldn't eat meat that was sacrificed to idols because the impurity of that meat would affect your, in your purity before a holy and righteous God. You couldn't touch certain things like dead bodies or those who were leprous. Otherwise, their uncleanness would translate to you and then you would be declared unclean. You couldn't do certain things on the Sabbath. If you transgressed it, you would transgress the law and thus need some sort of sacrifice to cover your impurity. But... One of the hallmarks that Paul champions over and over again of the work of Jesus Christ is that in Christ we have been declared permanently, eternally clean, righteous. Praise be to God. His work is what determines our status now, not our own. His work has made us pure and holy and righteous able to stand before a holy and righteous God and be a part of the community of saints. And as a result, these purification requirements in relation to to non-essential things like food, drink, the day of the week, Sabbath, for instance, circumcision, those are not required for us to be declared holy and righteous before God. And that would have been really great news to this predominantly Gentile audience that Paul is writing to in Corinth. There is liberty, friends, freedom that we enjoy in Christ. And Paul wants them and us to know that that we have this freedom, that we get to enjoy this freedom in Christ. But he also teaches that even though the purification requirements of the law have been fulfilled in Christ, the moral requirements of the law still remain. They have not changed. God still expects us to behave in accordance with his design, in accordance with his creation, in a way that brings him honor and glory. We are called to live in a set-apart way, and Christ has enabled us to do this. You see, the freedom we enjoy is a freedom from sin. It is not a freedom to engage in more sin, trusting that God's grace will cover it. We are freed from sin in order to be free to follow the Lord. And the Corinthians were perverting this teaching from from Paul based on the work of Christ to give an allowance to engage in things that did not honor the Lord. They're using it to excuse immoral behavior rather than embracing the freeness they now have to live in Christ for Christ They are turning back to those things that led them to a place where they were in danger of eternal destruction in the first place. As we saw in 1 Corinthians 5 with the issue of the young man sleeping with his mother-in-law. And this goes against the whole thing that Paul is trying to get them to understand. It goes against the whole teaching of Paul. As reflected in Romans chapter 6, when there's that question, hey Paul, should should we sin all the more to show the greatness of the grace of God? Wouldn't that be great to show how powerful God's grace is by just having really big sins for him to cover? And what does he say? Shall we continue in sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. How can you who have died to sin still walk in sin because you have been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ? It does not match. It does not match. The freedom that you have been given in Jesus is not a freedom from any authority. 
It's a freedom to be able to walk in accordance with this expectation that God has already, always given to us. It's a freedom to walk in obedience for the glory of God and your good. Second quote, food is for the stomach. Now this quote seems to be more secular in nature and it speaks to the, the natural appetites of mankind. The, the Corinthian philosophers, they would say that all of us have physical needs. All of us have physical desires and it's good for us to satisfy those desires. If you're hungry, you eat. Hunger is a, a, a physical indication of your body needing something and it leads you to respond by eating. And the logic here is that sex should be approached the same way. You have a physical appetite and you should seek to satisfy it. And listen, the Corinthians bought all into this. They had all kinds of ways to satisfy this appetite, not only in marriage, but also outside of marriage, engaging prostitutes and servants for their own sexual gratification. In fact, Corinth had kind of developed a reputation in, in the known world at, these time, at this time for all of these extracurricular activities. The whole culture was a culture of indulgence, from food to physical intimacy, and that indulgence, that priority of the, the satisfaction of the self had made its way into the church. And as a result, it was threatening the witness of the church. They were not looking set apart at all. They were allowing the culture to influence them rather than influencing the culture with the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul wants to confront their wisdom, what's really foolishness, with the wisdom of God to help call them back to faithfulness. And here's how he does that. In the second part of our text, he articulates three theological truths that if embraced would fundamentally change the way the church thought about, approached the act of sex. And here are these three logical truths, all three of them. Number one, the physical body was created by God and for God. You gotta believe that. Number two, Christians have been united with Christ in the spirit. And thirdly, your physical bodies have been bought, bought by God in Christ. Now let's Let's work through these so we feel the weight of them. Firstly, the physical body was created by God and for God. Now, Paul begins to articulate this truth as soon as he talks about that, that food stomach quote. After acknowledging how that quote was being used pervasively in the church to excuse sexual immorality, he addresses the implication of all that thought in verse 13. The body is not meant for this. You're saying it's just like a stomach. You, you should just use your body in this way. But the body is not intended for this. It was not created for this purpose. It was created for the Lord. You see, not only did the Corinthians believe that it was okay to satisfy natural sexual urges, they also didn't think there would be really any true eternal consequence to it. They believed the body, or really anything physical or material, was the source of all of our sinful desires, our sinful struggles, and that one day we would escape it. So you just indulge your flesh until you can get rid of it, and you focus on helping your spirit become more obedient to the Lord. There was this divide between our physical and our spiritual realities. Just, just wait to the day you can get rid of this flesh suit 
And then hopefully your soul will be ready to stand before a holy and righteous God. But I want you to hear me this morning clearly. This is not the teaching of scripture. It's heresy. The body has purpose. Physical reality has purpose. Everything, everything, everything that God created is for his glory, including our bodies. Now, it is true that we are more than physical bodies. Absolutely. But friends, we are not less. Our physicality, our physical bodies, they are part of God's design. And by the way, they are also part of his redemptive plan. And this is good news for us. For Paul, the incarnation and the resurrection prove this point that he's trying to make to the Corinthian church. They, they prove God's creative and redemptive intent. You can see that in verse 14. Jesus took on flesh to come and redeem us. He came to save the whole of humanity, not just part. He didn't only come in a spiritual state. And he was resurrected fully. He wasn't just resurrected spiritually. He was resurrected with a body that you could touch and see where the the nail piercings hit his hands. And one day, Paul says, we will be resurrected like him. Not just spirit, but also body. We're going to talk more about this at Easter, and I hope that you're very excited about that. But the point here is that what we do with our bodies matters because they are to be instruments for the worship of God to bring him glory. The physical world is not something we simply wait out or escape. The physical world is something that God is actively and will make new. We can't diminish the reach of the gospel, friends. We've got to see the fullness of the gospel on display. Now, we have a choice until that day. When God will make all things new. We can use our bodies for things that dishonor the Lord. And claim whatever heresy we want to to justify it. We can engage in sexual immorality. And there's a a lot of ways that are listed here in chapter 5 and chapter 6 to do that. We can use our bodies to assault other people who are made in the image of God. We can use our bodies and act on gender dysphoria by seeking to undo what God has done in his goodness. Or we can use our bodies to bring glory to God. We can use our bodies to serve one another. We can use our bodies to love one another. We can use our bodies in the act of marriage to display the gospel as Paul writes. We can use our bodies to physically go to the nations and to use our mouths to declare the glory of God and his gospel. Our bodies are created by God for his glory. We as a people must be committed to using the physical elements of our reality to bring him glory. And remember, one more point about the importance of our bodies, especially in alignment with God's redemptive plan. God's work in us will not be completed. We will not be fully glorified until we receive an eternal glorified body. You bet this physical part matters. To undermine, it undermines the full scope of what Christ did upon that cross. And may we never, ever, ever be guilty of that. Truth number two, Christians have been united with Christ by the Spirit. 
Not only has your body been designed by God for his glory, you have been united to Christ by the work of the Spirit in salvation. Can can we just delight in that truth for a moment? Isn't that an incredible thing to think about? You who were a sinner, you who were under the judgment and condemnation of God now because of the gospel have been united by God in Christ. You are in him, he is in you. That's a wonderful thing to think about. Look at verses 15 to 18 again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body and against the Lord because you are a temple of the living God. Verse 19. See, Paul wants us to remember that the sexual act is more than a physical act. It is different, despite what the Corinthians are arguing, than eating a hamburger, right? That's the correlation they're making. But I think all of us know what kind of foolishness that argument is. There's a physical element to the sexual act, of course. But there's also a spiritual element to it because God has designed the sex act to have a larger theological purpose within the confines of marriage to become one, verse 16. There's a a physical element of that, yes, but there is a spiritual significance to what's happening in that moment. Our marriages are meant to be testimonies to the gospel of Christ, both to us and to the world. You can see Paul write about that clearly in Ephesians chapter 5. And when we engage in physical intimacy with marriage, a union happens. That's much more than a physical union. It is a spiritual union. And I think all of us in this room who are married will testify to that. The relationship changes. It's different on the other side of that act. And there's a point to this. God is is teaching us something in that unity of the two becoming one flesh. He's teaching us about the kind of relationship that he desires to have with us, an intimate relationship where we are fully known. But he's also giving us an element of understanding about who he is and the core of his being. He is three persons in one God. And the the marriage act, the, the reality of marriage is meant to testify both to the goodness and the person of God and his gospel. And so here's the problem, friends. When we take the act lightly, when we take this union lightly, we diminish God's design and that intended testimony. We are actually blaspheming God and we are doing it with Christ attached to us. So Paul says, how in the world? How in the world can you claim to be a follower of Christ? How can you know that you are united with Christ and go and unite yourself in an action that is so dishonoring to the Lord. While it it may be lawful for you to engage in this kind of sexual immorality, according to the world's laws, it's not beneficial. No, it's destructive. And if you're not careful, it will lead to your destruction. Theological truth, three. 
Your physical bodies have been bought by God in Christ. And here's how Paul seals his argument. By reminding these Christians of the lordship of Christ in their life and the ultimate authority that God has over their lives because of the gospel. I want you to hear this this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, God has bought you by the blood of Christ. God has bought us by the blood of Christ. And here's why you needed that. You are a slave to sin. You are a slave to your evil passions and desires. You were in a debt. You had a debt. There was no way you could pay. But God, his abundant mercy and his grace paid that debt for us in Christ by shedding, spilling the priceless, precious blood of Jesus. And that is something we should celebrate today, friends, because we are no longer in bondage to our sin. We are free from that sin in Jesus. Romans chapter 6 reminds us of this wonderful truth. We already read a little bit earlier. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? But listen to the language beginning in verse 5 that Paul uses to tell us, to help us understand the transition that has taken place before Christ and then after Christ. Here's what he says, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer, listen, be enslaved to sin. For one has died and he has set us free from sin. Or he was set, he, he's set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And now here's the implication. You used to be enslaved to sin. You used to be dead in your trespasses and sin, but God in Christ has freed you from that enslavement. He has released you from that bondage and given you resurrection abundant life. And so here's the implication of that. Those who have been bought by Jesus, verse 12, it's a command. Because of all of that work of Jesus, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Hear me, you have the ability to resist, you used to be enslaved to sin. You used to be unable to fully resist the powers and the pressures of sin, but now in Christ Jesus, oh friend, you have the ability to walk in freedom. This is so important. It's so important for us to understand that the freedom that we have been given, and we've talked about it already, is not a, a freedom from any authority whatsoever. It is a freedom from sin but it's a freedom now to live under the authority and lordship of Jesus. Because rather than being slaves to sin, we are now servants of Christ. And here's why that's so good. Because now we are living for a master who wants us, who is, who is working for our ultimate good. Who is working for our eternal good rather than working to lead us to a place of destruction. And friends who have been bought with the price, we should live our lives in such a way that it brings pleasure to him. Believing and knowing 
that when we live for the pleasure of God, when we live for the pleasure of Christ, there will be a pleasure and joy that comes into our lives that no pleasure in this world, that is solely in this world, could ever come close to matching. As followers of Jesus, we gotta trust in the wisdom of God that it will bring us fullness of joy, that in, in his presence, there are pleasures forevermore. I hope you see the benefit of Paul's writing for us as the people of God today, because isn't it interesting how similar our situations are? Isn't it striking how the wisdom of our age today is, is so aligned with the so-called wisdom of Paul's day? See, our, our culture even today wants to cast off every form of sexual restraint in favor of individual liberty. And they ask questions like this, who are you to tell me? who I can or cannot have an intimate relationship with. It's my business, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Our culture seems to encourage indulgence at every turn with pleasure as our ultimate goal. And we need the wisdom of God to counter this destructive wisdom, this foolishness that our culture has allowed to flow since the sexual revolution of the 20th century. Listen to this quote from Mark Dever, one of my favorite pastors. It'll be on the screen so you can read with me. The most important revolution of the 20th century was the sexual revolution. Contraception replaced conception. Pleasure was separated from responsibility. It was as if a license was given out, legitimizing the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. And since that time, Divorce, remarriage, abortion, premarital sex, extramarital sex, as well as homosexuality have been accepted by increasing percentages of the public. Pornography is huge business. And this is not just a problem with society out there. Many churches have found their members plagued by failed marriages, illicit affairs, by so-called private sins that turn into public disgraces, some of which are known and some of which are not yet no, it's a sober reminder, church, that the issue is not just in the culture. The issue is also in the church. In fact, in many cases, we have forfeited our ability to speak with integrity on the subject because so many in our churches have had moral failings. So many of those in leadership have had moral failings. Many in our churches are actively, even now, looking at pornography. Many in our churches are excusing sexual behavior that has not been ordained by God that actually he declares to be wicked. We have failed to champion the goodness of sex in accordance with God's design and the confines of marriage while warning clearly of the dangers of sex and any other kind of relationship outside of marriage. Church, we need to reclaim our footing because as Francis Schaeffer said, the idea of absolute autonomous freedom from God's boundaries flows into the idea of equality without distinction, which flows into the, the denial of what it truly means to be male and female, which flows into abortion and homosexuality and the destruction of the home and the family and ultimately the destruction of our culture. It's a slippery slope to see the wake of sin as we embrace sexual immorality 
rather than standing upon God's truth. So how can we do this? How can we embrace and champion the wisdom of God as an antidote to the foolishness of our culture? Let me just offer four responses this morning for us to consider. Firstly, let's remember the gospel of Christ. Church, let's embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wanna do this, I wanna, I wanna begin with the gospel for two reasons. Firstly, the gospel helps inform what we see. It helps us know why there's brokenness. It also helps us remember the solution to the brokenness. But I also wanna begin here because my guess is with the weightiness of this topic, and the pervasiveness of sexual immorality that exists in our culture and statistics show exist in our church. And I want all of us in this room to remember the hope that we have in Christ. I want all of us to remember the freedom we have in Christ and the grace that covers every sin. Our starting point must be the gospel. Listen, we need to make sure that we look at everything in this life through the lens of scripture and God's word. We gotta remember God's purposes in all of creation. We gotta remember his sacrifice for us and our salvation. We gotta remember his authority in our lives because we have been bought with a, Christ, uh, with a price and Jesus is our savior and our Lord. We need to believe that God gave sex to us as a gift in marriage and that it, it brings joy and intimacy in a marriage that helps us know God more and more than that, populate the earth with more worshipers of King Jesus, and he is worthy of that. We're gonna talk about that more next week in chapter seven. But because of sin, here's the problem. We've taken this good gift from God and perverted it for our own pleasure with no regard for God, leading to our own destruction, leading to relational hardships, marital devastation, disease, the literal destruction of life, and abortion and the sex trade, and we need God to call us back to himself. We need God to remind us of the delusion of the foolishness of this world and the glory and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. We have freedom in Christ. We have freedom to resist, to reject the foolishness of this world and reject the sinful temptation of this world. Oh, friends, can you remember what God has done for you in Christ? Can we remember whatever, regardless of what sinful state we found ourselves in when we encounter Jesus, can you remember? Can you remember how lost we were, our future of destruction? Can you remember how hopeless we were to escape the traps of sin? And can we remember the joy that we met, that we felt, that, that, that moment when God awakened our soul, when he opened our eyes to see how he had loved us in Christ? We need to remember that day. We need to cling to that day. We gotta, we gotta testify, preach to ourselves the gospel every day to help us not be dissuaded or deceived by the foolishness of this world, but to walk in obedience in the wisdom of God. Hear me this morning, Christian. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, you are united with Christ. If you are in Christ, you are living under the authority of Christ and this is for your good. And that leads us to our second point of response. Let's repent. Let's remember the gospel. Let's hold fast to the gospel that allows this moment not to be a moment of condemnation, but rather a moment of conviction. But let's feel the conviction, church. 
Let's repent of our sexual immorality. And let me just speak to two groups here. Firstly, if you're not a follower of Christ, I just want to remind you something of something that of something we read last week, a text we looked at last week in 1 Corinthians 6. This is verses 9 through 11. Do you, not know the, do you not know that the unrighteous, and that would be you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, anybody who's outside of Christ is considered to be unrighteous, meaning that you won't be able to stand before a holy and righteous God and that we'll be separated him, from him from eternity. We don't want that for you. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. The sexually immoral, the adulterers, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, the drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I want you to hear this promise in verse 11. And such were some of you. Hear me, everybody in this room could fall into one of those categories. But they are not what define us any longer. We're not defined by sin, we're defined by Jesus. We are sinners who have been saved and now declared saints. And the Bible promises you that if you will come and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you will come in humility and repentance, he will save you as well. He will take you from, from where you are to were. Save you, make you clean, declare you righteous. He will wash you. You may feel dirty this morning. Good. I hope you see the weight of sin, but also know that Jesus alone can make you clean, and he will. He'll wash you. He'll sanctify you. He'll make you holy, and he will justify you. He will set you right before a holy and righteous God, and you will get to enjoy his presence for all of eternity. In just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you and encourage you. If you need to give your life to Christ this morning, come. There is a future that is free from sin. There is a future that is free from sexual sin, but is only found in Christ. Come, receive that freedom today. If you are a follower of Jesus, maybe you have a different kind of repentance you need to engage in this morning. Not repentance unto salvation, but repentance for a lack of obedience. Have you been engaging in sexual immorality of any kind that would dishonor the Lord? The Bible calls you to flee from it. Flee from it. Remember, number one, you are united with Christ. Can we just imagine for a moment how much sin we would reject if we remember that Jesus is with us at all times, right? You may be away from your family. You may be away from your kids or your wife or your church. You're never away from Jesus. Can we just remember that this morning? But even if, even if you've fallen short, would you just flee this morning? Would you commit to repent and flee? Repent and flee. Bring your struggle to the light. The enemy wants you to stay in isolation. The enemy wants you to keep it covered. But remember a saying we've used here before, what you cover, God will uncover. And a lot of times it's gonna be destructive when it, for your good, it's a little bit of an act of judgment. But what you uncover and repentance, God will cover. 
I want you to remember that gospel. Do you believe it? Do you believe God's grace is enough? I know sometimes we think sexual sin is worse than other sins, and there are other consequences because of how it affects our body as a temple of the Lord and that we are enjoining someone else into the equation as well. There's certainly a, a grave danger to sexual sin, but to say that your sin is beyond the reach of the grace and work of Christ upon the cross diminishes that work, reject that lie from the pit of hell where it came from. There's no sin that is greater than the work of Jesus. And if you believe that this morning, then confess it. Get a neighbor, a brother or sister in Christ who loves you, who is also saved from their sin in Jesus by his grace. None of us in here are, are gonna shame you. We're gonna delight in the fact that you wanna walk in faithfulness. Confess. If you don't have someone right with you that you can say, I need some help to, to walk in this, come talk to one of our pastors. Email us. Call us this week. My challenge to you, though, is just don't wait to the point where conviction releases. Because you can excuse it away and think, man, I can do this on my own. But remember, how's your track record? Doing it on your own. God gave you the gift of community to help you in this. Take advantage of it for his glory. Thirdly, this is to the church. Corporately, let's reject the wisdom of this world. Bayleaf, let's stand on the word of God. Let's be crystal clear, speaking the truth in love with grace dripping from our words that what God has said is good. Let's be clear about what God has said is not good. Can we just fundamentally reject two lies? Firstly, can we reject the lie that God is trying to hold back something from us that is good? That's not true. God's boundaries are not for our detriment or our destruction. They are for our protection. It's the same thing we do with my dog, Baxter. We got a fence. He's got a lot of yard to play in, to enjoy. But there are times when he wants to go beyond the fence. And every time he gets a little close, he gets a shock. Why? Because I don't want the brother getting hit by a car. Sometimes we get so focused on what we don't have that we miss the beauty and the glory of what we do have. Listen, God's restraint is for our good. It's for our good. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Secondly, let's reject the lie that our actions have no effect on others. That's one of the pervasive declarations of our culture today when it comes to sexual immorality. It's, a, it's an individualism, a rampant individualism. What does it matter what I do, especially if it doesn't, hurt anyone else. And this is a specific thing, a specific excuse when it comes to the use of pornography. And I just want us to reject that this morning. It's, it's foolishness to think that our sin has no cost. It will cost you. It will cost your family. It will cost your church. By the way, it also costs those whom we objectify. Let me just give you one example. Sex trafficking, it's a form of slavery, is becoming a multi-billion dollar industry globally. In fact, I saw one report that said traffickers will make a profit of somewhere around $170 billion this year through human trafficking, specifically sex trafficking. It's a stunning number. UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, says that upwards of 30 million children have been sexually exploited through human trafficking. Hear me. Prostitution and pornography are not victimless. They fund a whole industry that objectifies and enslaves other human beings who are made in the image of God. 
That demeans the work of God. It doesn't celebrate it. And it should have no place among the people of God. And finally, church family, let's use our bodies for the glory of God. Glorify your God in your body. Let's remember our bodies are temples of the living God. God has given them to us for his glory and for the sake of the gospel. Let's use our bodies and our marriages for the glory of God. Let's use our bodies in the church for the glory of God. And let's use our bodies in the world for the glory of God. It matters what we do. We're testifying to the reach of the gospel of Christ when we engage in our whole selves and the ongoing redemptive work of Christ. Let's live for the glory of God. There's a wisdom of this world that's really foolishness. Church, let's embrace the true wisdom of God in this matter and every matter for our good and his glory. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time asking how you can respond to the preached word this morning. Are you in Christ? Have you, have you transferred from the word to the is? Or the unrighteous now to the unrighteous was? If you've never repented and believed in Jesus, we would love to receive you today and pray with you, help you know what it means to follow Christ. For those who are in Christ, how are we doing in this particular area? Are we honoring the Lord with our bodies? Are we honoring the Lord with our thoughts? Are we believing the wisdom of this world to excuse sin? Are we fighting to live in the wisdom of God and the power of God? Father, would you help us respond in a way that honors you? May we be a more faithful people because of our time around your word today. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week at Bayleaf. For more information about Bayleaf Baptist Church, visit our website at bayleaf.org.